According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. And today we move on to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, a chapter that scares a lot of people. It won't scare us because uh, we've done our homework in chapters 1 through 5, and we're uh, clear on uh, the... uh, issues involved, but there is Arminian theology out there and folks that are afraid of losing their salvation, and uh, they struggle with chapter 3, they struggle with chapter 6, they struggle with chapter 10, so uh, this is the middle of the three struggles that they have, and we'll, we'll work our way through and show you that far from being a struggle, it's actually a great reinforcement on eternal security, that you cannot lose your salvation. And in fact, I'm not going to let you leave today if you still think you can lose your salvation. Uh, you'll have to stay here, and, uh, and, and I'll keep preaching at you until you realize that he gives eternal life, and eternal life doesn't expire. You can't throw it away. It's eternal Amen? All right. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And that's a goal for every single one of us here today. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to teach us from His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before You just so thankful. You are faithful, Father, eternally faithful in saving us, in teaching us, in building us up. Thank you, Father, that in the Word of God we are built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man. I do pray for this day, Father, as the Word of God goes forth, that we would take it in, that we would be nourished by it, that we would be deeply implanted, firmly implanted, Father, that uh, can spring forth and bear fruit. So, Father, uh, we humble ourselves before you. Feed us and teach us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to handle uh, verses 1 and 2 as a unit. And since I only stopped halfway through verse 1, let's just pick up there. But remember how chapter 5 ended. If you were here last week, how chapter 5 ended, it was a bit of a uh, a bit of a downer, even the, fun, the final verses of chapter five, because the author had so much he wanted to say about Melchizedek, and his readers weren't ready for it. They had slowness of hearing, they had a dullness of hearing, and so uh, as it says uh, concerning Melchizedek in five ten, he says five eleven concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And that dole of hearing problem, it's it's still a problem today. It's going to be a problem for you this morning. If you're dole of hearing, some of the material here is going to be rough on you because uh, Hebrews is, is, uh, that's what it is. It goes on to say, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And uh, this word again comes up, and, and funny enough, it comes up again and again and again at the end of chapter 5 and early here in chapter 6. And really, you want to pay attention to all those again and again and again because this is the author's way of linking these things together so that we don't change context. The context is believers who by now should have grown up. They haven't grown up. They need to get in gear and start growing. All right? And that's what it is again and again and again. And if you have need of milk again, that doesn't mean you lost your salvation. It means you've degraded in your maturity and now you need to grow some more. 
And so it's going to happen again and again and again. And in chapter 6, the warning that happens, happens with a, uh, the idea of again. And the verse everyone's scared of in 6.6, 6, it says, if they've fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Okay, And so they have an again there that serves as a grammatical clue. It serves as a, as a clue in the text that it's not separated from all those other again and again and agains that we're looking at at the end of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6. Anyway, we'll deal with that as we get to, uh, to verse 6. So there's milk, there's solid food. Uh, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is an infant. Babies need milk. That's why little newborns are nursing. That's why little newborns, you don't take them to pluckers and get them the, the tenders and the, and the waffle fries, all right? They nurse. That's what they do. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And, uh, and they're not on that path. They should be, but they're not. They're not growing. And so when we cross into chapter 6, therefore, is coming from that warning, and says, let's grow up, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Let us press on, leaving the elementary teaching. Now, they need the milk again. They need, the, they need to review the basics, but the author's not going to give it to them. The author's leaving it up to them to go teach themselves those basics all over again. The author's going to gain new ground here in chapter 6. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of, and this we will do if God permits, if God permits. So that's verses one through three here of Hebrews chapter six. And did you notice that uh, instruction, let's see, the laying again, a foundation of, and notice what these basics are. He says, these are the basics, and I'm not going to go over them again. And basic doctrine for new believers. Well, I'm going to outline them for you, but you'll notice repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. Is that a gospel message? Or is that foundational doctrine for a new believer? Thank you. Foundational doctrine for a new believer, along with everything else that's here. All right, we'll talk about uh, why some people try to make that a gospel message and different things. Now, biological aging is inevitable. Well, (laughs) somebody laughed. Well, spiritual maturity is a pressing on endeavor. It is a pressing on endeavor. It says, let us press on. That's effort. Pressing on, that's effort. It's an endeavor. All right? And, and most folks don't do it. Okay? That's, that's not the case for biological aging. It is not a pressing on endeavor. We just, we age. That's what we do. And we can't opt out. And we can't just, uh, you know, drift from our uh, feeding and, and stop aging. What happens is we drift from our feeding and we start starving. All right. And we, uh, we, we continue to age even as we starve to death. Biological aging happens. Okay. That's the point I'm trying to make here in this contrast. And admittedly, let me confess something here. I am loosely swapping out concepts of aging and maturing. Sometimes that's, uh, in question. 
I've known many young men that have aged but not matured, okay? And I know some young women that mature faster than young men, even while the aging process is comparable. Nevertheless, we'll try to keep it simple this morning, and we'll keep the idea of aging and maturity uh, as a a term. Uh, But spiritual maturity is a pressing on endeavor, okay? You don't have to press on to add biological years to your life. You just have to live biological years. But you do have to press on to attain to spiritual maturity. It is a pressing on endeavor, as we see here. Let us press on. And if you are just going over the same ground again and again, if all you do is go back to the basics and get back on basics and get back on basics, and then you just end up with a nonstop cycle of nothing but the basics, if you never build on the basics, then you're going to drift from it every time. If you never build on it, see, it's a perishable skill and you will actually retrograde to a uh, spiritual infantile circumstance and you're going to need milk again. Philippians 3, 12 through 15, that's our other study in the early hour and on Wednesday nights. And uh, we've been dealing with this about pressing on. In fact, it's coming up in a later chapter or a later segment of chapter 3. Uh, but Paul says he doesn't view himself as mature yet. Okay? And if the Apostle Paul's not mature yet, why do I raise my hand and think I'm mature? Okay? Because we're maturing is the process. And even if you make a claim to having matured to a point, you still forget all that and you keep reaching forward as if you haven't attained anything yet. See, and that's what we're going to learn in, in Philippians 3. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already been become perfect, but I press on. This is our language of effort. This is our language that we have here in, in Hebrews 6. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful verse? He says, I want to grab something and I haven't grabbed it yet. And the reason I want to grab it is because that thing is the reason why Jesus Christ grabbed me. Just pay attention. It's beautiful. I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So why did Jesus grab you? Why did Jesus grab hold of you? I'm being very careful here not to say, why did Jesus save you? Because that's a different question. Why did Jesus lay hold of you? And he didn't lay hold of you in order to save you. He didn't lay hold of you in order to give you eternal life. Paul's already saved. Paul already has eternal life. But this thing he wants to lay hold of, he says, I haven't laid hold of it yet. He's already saved. He already has eternal life. But he wants to lay hold of that for which also he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And so we have to press on. We're talking about maturity. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's not forgetting the negatives before you got saved and reaching forward. That's forgetting everything from from the past. That's even positive things. Even things you've laid up in heaven. Act like you haven't done it yet. Act like you haven't laid it up there yet. See, you've taught 5,530 seven times, eight times. This is number 38. Forget all that. Act like this is your first one. Reach forward. Act like you've laid nothing up in heaven. You go, wow. 
Uh, the rapture could come today and I've barely got anything stacked up there. In fact, I don't have anything stacked up there. The rapture can come today. I better stack something up there today. I've got one last day to lay up my treasures in heaven. I press on, he says. So forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that is such a remarkable verse, if only for the cadence, for the, the, uh, the, when you read it, when you speak it, it's, it's moving forward, it's moving forward, it's moving forward, even in the, the words that are used. I press on forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what it's all about. We should be pressing forward. It takes work. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, well, wait a minute, I said we weren't there yet. So he kind of hints at the fact that, well, you are, but not yet. Have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to also to you. And we'll discuss how, how much sarcasm Paul leases into this. It may be that he's using this in an expression where if there are some that view themselves as perfect, as perfect he says, well, you guys keep pressing on too anyway, just in case. <laughs> All right, because I suspect you're not as mature as you think you are. Okay, so let's keep pressing on. And if you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Isn't that beautiful? I love the fact that we don't need to assign deacons or deaconesses or you know legalism monitors. Uh, we don't have hall proctors that are scoring anybody on there on the, on any of that. It's when you need the attitude adjustment, the Word of God is going to do it. All right, doctrine is just going to start slapping you left and right and go, wait a minute, okay. And God has a marvelous way of, uh, of working these things out. God will show that to you. And uh, thankfully he does. How about Colossians? Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Colossians will be our next book after Philippians. And then Philemon after that. And then uh, we'll be ready for Ephesians. Um, which is basically a deeper form of Colossians, patriological rather than Christological, um, and more. But Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we proclaim Him, that's Christ. Let's talk about uh, what we have here in Christ. I love verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't that beautiful? Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're saved, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And that word complete is the same as perfect. Okay? Complete in Christ. Now that takes work. That's, that just doesn't automatically happen. For this purpose also I labor. That sounds like work. Hard work. I labor, striving. That sounds like more work. According to His power. That's a blessing. My power would run out. Which mightily works within me. And as typical for Paul's writing, he's piled it on and piled it on and piled it on. But look at all those terms. Labor, striving, his power, mightily, works. That's a lot of work. 
Biological aging is inevitable while spiritual maturity is a pressing on endeavor. And the author of Hebrews says, let us press on. Not laying again a foundation. Well, what are these elementary, priestly, foundational principles? Back to Hebrews 6. In all of these six expressions, there are priestly tones to all of them. Elementary, foundational principles for New Testament believers are expressed in priestly terms. And it's pretty easy to spot the priestly terms, especially uh, washings and layings on of hands and, and that. Uh, but really, there's priestly connections in all of this. Um, and that makes it useful, but I think it makes it useful twice. I think it makes it useful in the two primary uh, audiences that everybody debates. I think it makes it useful for Jewish Old Testament believers particularly if they are Levitical, if they are priests, then communicating these things in priestly terms is right up their alley and they they can lock on on that very quickly. But even for Gentile pagans, even for Gentile pagans, uh, using priestly language still can resonate with them because they've got some kind of paganism, some kind of priesthood, some kind of thing, religious experience that they're exposed to in Roman or Greek or whatever Gentile priesthood they're, uh, they're familiar with. And the fact that it benefits both groups is wonderful because it shows the the tremendous unity that we all have. In other words, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, hey, in this new church age, we're all believer priests. We're all able to serve. And uh, whether we're Jewish or Gentile or whatever, we all have a share in this priesthood. And so uh, it's useful for both converts and crossovers. Okay? I'm still working on my terms converts versus crossovers. What do I mean by that? Converts versus crossovers. We don't have any crossovers today, but back then they had, and in these, the, the recipients of this book were among them. You have Old Testament believers that crossed over into the church. Okay? In other words, they were saved before the cross. They were saved before Jesus died on the cross. They were Old Testament believers. And they got saved waiting for Messiah. And Jesus, you know, the cross, the Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And they're believers. And then Christ comes. And then the church begins. Now they need to cross over. And this is, happens a lot in the book of Acts. Constantly the apostles are finding people. They're saved, but they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. Because Old Testament believers didn't get the Holy Spirit. But New Testament believers do. And so the mechanism, by the way, Anybody that gets saved after the cross, they get the Holy Spirit the moment they're saved. Just like you got the Holy Spirit when you got saved. That's, that's true for the church age. The only problem is that what do we do with those, those Old Testament believers? They have to cross over. That's the point. And they don't get saved a second time, but they do have the laying on of hands. They do identify with the apostles, with the body of Christ. They will undertake a water baptism ritual to identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then when the apostle lays hands on them, they don't get saved a second time, but they do cross over from being an Old Testament believer into being a New Testament believer. So that's what I mean by crossovers and uh, converts. Okay, And you've got you to factor that in. Anytime you're studying the book of Acts, anytime you're studying Hebrews, anytime you're studying most, many of the, of the New Testament books. Okay, Otherwise you can relax about it. You're not going to be walking the streets of Austin and encounter an Old Testament believer. 
There's nobody around that uh, got saved before Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And by the way, a Jewish person today who thinks Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, he doesn't become an Old Testament believer by believing that Messiah is coming. He remains an unbeliever who needs to be told that Messiah came. He died on the cross. He rose again. Okay? So, as long as we're clear on that. And I think these, uh, these uh, six principles are uh, useful for both converts and crossovers. In fact, it kind of gives us a good outline for what would you put together. If you, if you lead somebody to the Lord this afternoon and you want to kind of ground them in the, in the Word of God, what uh, these six things would be a good thing to start with. They, they form an outline. The author of Hebrews thought so, and the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible. Um, they are in structured as a triplet of pairings. And really, um, repentance from dead works and faith towards God, they're linked as a pairing, the first of the three pairings, six altogether, of doctrine, teachings about washings or baptisms and the laying on of hands. The Greek word there for washings is baptisma. It's our word for baptism, but it's plural. Plural baptisms and the laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Why do you need to teach new new believers about eternal judgment? Didn't they just get rescued from that? No, we all face an eternal judgment. It's just ours is a judgment of righteousness and light and glory. And the one they escaped was an eternal judgment of darkness and wrath and and, uh, separation in the lake of fire. But we all face an eternal judgment. And baby believers need to be grounded in that particular doctrine. In fact, all six of these then. So what are the basics? What do we start with in the basics? Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. This is described as a foundational elementary thing. In fact, he just passes by here and says, I'm not going to cover this. We're pressing on to maturity. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. The contrast of works and faith is intrinsic to phase one salvation. Right? It's intrinsic. If, you're, if, you're, if you meet an unbeliever and he's doing all kinds of works, trying to earn salvation, guess what? He's not going to save himself. Works doesn't save anybody. And so you'll have an opportunity to approach him and show a contrast and say, you know what? I can tell you something's better than works. It's called faith. (laughs) Okay? And you can introduce them to the gospel and you can talk about it. Salvation is by faith. It's not by works. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? And you can show that contrast. It is intrinsic. It's built in when we're talking about phase one salvation. However, it's also foundational teaching so that the baby believer can regularly experience phase two salvation. All right. And I hope you're clear on these terms. And if I need to review them, I will. But uh, the three different ways that we use salvation, phase one, phase two, phase three. And we got to understand that this passage is talking about baby believers that are uh, needing to be saved day by day from, from sin and from legalism temptations and religi- religiosity and every other kind of snare that's out there. So, the, uh, and I meant to start this earlier. Let me do this now. Get my drawing tablet up here. Oh, not that one. Let's get a new one. 
All right. And so when we talk about getting saved, yeah, we get that. Phase one, salvation. And so I believe in Jesus Christ. I receive eternal life. And the Bible uses save and, and salvation and nouns like that. And, and that's clear. None of us would dispute that. But it's not the most common. It's not the most frequent use. More often than not, for me, this was uh, September of 1973. So I'm coming up on uh, my 44th, 45th birthday. All right. That's phase one salvation. But then there's multiple salvations, daily salvations, moment by moment salvations. There are times when I am tempted to sin and uh, I need to be saved here in phase two. And this is where the word of God saves me. This is where I'm saved from the power of sin. Here I'm saved from the penalty of sin. Here I'm saved from the power of sin. And I need this. And this is where the teachings on works versus faith, boy, do these come alive. Because if I become a legalist and I start thinking that my works are going to be a credit towards uh, the judgment seat of Christ, wait a minute. It does nothing. It's of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so uh, this teaching, this contrast of works with faith is so huge so that I can be saved today, tomorrow, the next day, multiple times every day. See, with humility, receive the Word of God implanted, which is able to save your soul. Phase two, salvation. Phase two, salvation. And so you want the Word of God implanted. The Word of God implanted will save you again and again and again. Because here comes a temptation to do this sin, and you're about to do it. Your, your flesh wants to do it. But the Word of God inside you says, no, that's not right. The Bible says, thou shalt not. And... and uh, and you just got saved, okay? Phase two, salvation. And then ultimately, phase three, salvation. My mother has experienced this. Others that are with the Lord, you go from the cross to the crown. That's a crown, in case you couldn't tell. (laughs) Art school was not a part of my seminary training. And so the Bible also refers to this as a salvation. The Bible will use salvation vocabulary to talk about dying, going to heaven. And here we're saved from the very presence of sin. So from the penalty of sin, presence, to the power of sin, to the presence of sin. Okay? And phase one, phase two, phase three. The Bible uses saved. I hope this is today. Trumpet sounds, this is today. We're all going to heaven today when that trumpet sounds. So when we're looking here at this foundation... And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, in uh, this foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, he's not talking about how they got eternal life. He's talking about how they were first grounded in basic doctrine so they could walk by faith and not by sight. So that they could regularly, day by day, have uh, victory in the Christian walk. So the contrast of works and faith is intrinsic to phase one salvation. Do we need to read Romans? I guess so. Romans uh, 3. We should be very familiar with these, and we can use these. If you encounter an unbeliever trying to work his way to heaven, 
I did a couple weeks ago. He's been going to he's been going to church for fifty years, but he's been going to a Roman church and he's been working hard, and he really, really, really thinks that he is probably good enough. And I thought, wow, that's got to be exhausting. All right, Romans three twenty seven. Where is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Works? No, by a law of faith. If you think works justifies and you think you've done it, then you've got boasting material over the guy you think didn't do it. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works, works of the law or any other kind of works. So it's not works, it's faith. Romans nine thirty two. Talking about Jews and Gentiles and why Israel did not arrive. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And since they were on a works basis, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Okay, so and next time you're out there and you encounter that unbeliever and he thinks works is going to get him there, stop it and say, wait a minute, it's faith, it's grace, it's not works. There's no boasting in this. And so, yes, for phase one salvation, that's, uh, that's important. But then it becomes a foundational teaching. And in Galatians 3, we went through this. Do you remember the Galatians series? That was before Philippians. Galatians. And in Galatians 3, he calls them a bunch of fools. Okay? You foolish Galatians. And I would do the same thing to Austin Bible Church if you started doing stuff like this too. Call you a bunch of fools. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Not only the reality of him dying on the cross, but how that was portrayed to you. Keep that in mind. This, this one thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, and I would ask the same thing today. When you got saved, was it by works or was it by faith? Yeah. Well, then, great. So explain this to me then, you foolish Galatians. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If you were saved by grace through faith, what do you think you're doing now? trying to advance in spirituality, trying to advance in your sanctification, trying to arrive at spiritual maturity, you're going to change horses in the middle of the stream? Change streams in the middle of the horse? What are you going to do? You're going to, wait a minute. It's by grace through faith for your salvation and for your sanctification, for your maturation, for victory in this Christian walk. Are you so foolish? Now you're going to be perfected by the flesh? You know, if the flesh couldn't save you, why do you think it can perfect you? Why do you think it can mature you? Why do you think God's going to want any part of that when you get there? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and work miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And clearly, that's the answer. So this is a foundational teaching so the baby believer can regularly experience phase two salvation. And and I tell you, if you lead somebody to Christ this afternoon, start teaching them this immediately and say, 
You just got saved, not by works, but by faith. And the rest of your walk now has to be the same way. It has to be by faith. It can't be through your own ability, through your own human effort, through your own righteousness, through anything you can produce apart from faith. It's got to be by faith. And teach them about that walk. And if, they, uh, if they've still got those elementary things in their mind from their unbelieving days, thinking that their works count for something, that's what they've got to repent of. Repentance from dead works to serve the living God. It is a foundational thing. The second area, instruction about washings and laying on of hands. Instruction, doctrine about washings, plural, baptisms, plural, and laying on of hands, plural. There's a lot of these too. Realize, what is this instruction? And I think we can, this is a, not another natural pairing It's a tandem of two things. And you say, well, what does baptism have to do with laying on of hands? Okay? I was baptized when I was 10, but I wasn't ordained until I was 25. And yet, it's the same thing in a way. Every category of baptism, every category of handling, the the doctrinal theme centers on identification. It centers on identification. Baptism is an identification. Ordination is an identification. Handling is an identification. And so we talk about these, all these things. Every category of baptism. And I like the fact that it's baptisms plural. I think it's useful. I think it's, uh, and, and originally, <laughs> you got baptized the day you got saved. That's how it worked. But uh, lately, we, we've not done that. We've waited until the, the child is old enough or the adult is old enough. The concept of adult baptism is that you want it to be a, a testimony of, of your active faith. Um, but, but water baptism is an identification, right? Everybody I've ever baptized, I dunk them under the water and I don't leave them there. I bring them back up. Because the identification is with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And so that's an identification. Spirit baptism is an identification. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit and we are sealed in union with Christ. We identify with Jesus Christ, the victorious, risen, ascended, seated Savior. It's an identification. The baptism of fire is going to be an identification. The baptism of blood... Jesus went to the cross and uh, he underwent that baptism of blood. He had that cup and the disciples thought they could drink it. But there's an identification there with that baptism as well. Of course, with uh, John the Baptist, there was identification. With Jesus, there was identification. Even uh, the Jewish proselytite, uh, proselytizing ritual was a baptism ritual of identification. It's all about the identification. Likewise, every category of handling, starting with the priestly sacrifices. You know, when you bring your goat, you don't just drop off your goat at the priest and say, there you go, there's my goat, have fun, (laughs) okay? You actually bring the goat and then you stay there, you lay your hands on that goat's head or the sheep or the ox or whatever you're doing, okay? Why do you lay hands on the, because it's identification, that goat is taking your place. And you're laying hands on. The priest is going to slit the throat. That, that goat's going to die. 
And you're there. Your hands are laid on. It's identification. Uh, So from sacrifice, likewise, ordination. Aaron and his sons, the laying on of hands. Ordination, church age ordination, the laying on of hands. All right, with Pastor Cliff or Pastor Dan or others that are coming along. It's identification. And what happens is you have your fellow elders and they come alongside and they've examined you and they've determined that you, you are gifted and you are trained and you are called to ministry and you are obedient to that calling. And the laying on of hands is the identification that says you are a fellow elder. You're one of us. It's, it's an identification in that. Okay. Likewise, blessing. Laying on of hands there. Remember when Jacob blessed... Uh, yeah, there was, uh, Jacob and Esau were fighting over Isaac's blessing. And that was the laying on of hands. Or then when Jacob blessed Manasseh and Ephraim and he crossed his hands over. Oops. You cross your hands over and then you end up, your right hand is on the wrong head and you're blessing the younger boy. Now Jacob said, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, healing as well. The laying on of hands. There's an identification in uh, these different categories. And so I think part of the elementary basic principles of the doctrines that we want to teach. We want to teach faith over works. Then we want to teach identification. And we want to teach identification so that the baby believer now knows that he's in Christ. New things have come. The old things have passed away. The new believer, the baby believer wants to know that he now identifies with, no longer with the God of this age, but with the the, the God in heaven above. There is an identification now as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so 2 Corinthians 5 addresses this. In verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Lead somebody to the Lord and he's a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. And so this becomes an identification When you lead someone to the Lord, they're now in your family. They're now in the body of Christ. And um, it talks about this and why we have the ministry of reconciliation and what our role is as ambassadors, as beggars. In verse 20, it calls us both ambassadors and beggars. And um, But in verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. When we talk about doing something for somebody's sake and the directionality is important. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is our new identification. I am no longer the sinner. I am the saint. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And this identification is is huge. My mother's favorite verse is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, right? This is what happens when we identify. It doesn't mean I was one of those other thieves on the cross back then. (laughs) Okay, There's only two, one on the left, one on the right. No, I have been baptized into union with Christ, into His death, His burial, resurrection, ascension. So that means as Christ was crucified, I was crucified in Him. That's the whole thrust of retroactive positional truth. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is my new identity. 
Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I still have my human body, but guess what? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so really that first pairing of of faith over works goes right in line with this pairing, with identification with Christ. And so uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's my identification. Finally, Romans 6, 3 through 14, identification. Identification. This is why it's, it's, uh, it's not legalism when we're talking about sins versus righteousness versus way to walk and way not to walk. It is an extension, it's a natural extension of the appropriate identification with our position in Christ. Romans uh, 6.3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Don't you know that? You should know that. Why should you know that? Because it's foundational, basic, elementary teaching for the church age. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Do you remember when you were buried? Positionally, in Christ, the Holy Spirit dead, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. You were buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And if we identify with him, we will. If we don't, we won't. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that's not someday when the trumpet sounds, that's today. That's today walking in the newness of life, considering yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So when, Think about what you do when you go carnal. The next sin you commit, what you're going to functionally do is uh, even though that sin nature was crucified, you're going to uncrucify it. You're going to pull it off the cross in your thinking, in your attitude. Okay? And you're actually going to bow down and worship your sin nature. And you're going to obey and serve what that dead thing wants you to do. For he who died is free from sin. Now if, and we have, We have died with Christ. We believe that we also live with Christ. And that's not someday when we get to heaven. That's now. That's today. I have eternal life today. I presently have that life today. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So why is sin master over me? Why do I let my sin nature push me around? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. Why would I consider myself that? Because it's true. (laughs) Positionally, it's true. So experientially, consider it that way. Consider it as true. Okay? You know, you think about all the things you consider yourself. Are they true? Anybody else consider you that way? 
Yeah. Some guys consider themselves God's gift to women. All right. The, most women don't consider him that, but okay, this guy does. Right? Or do you consider you consider you have a good singing voice? That's great. Glad you do. Do you consider whatever? You know, you consider yourself a a good uh, you know, basketball player. Whatever you consider yourself. The fact is, we can consider a lot of things that have no basis on reality. Okay? <laughs> Do you consider yourself a good Scrabble player? Okay? Until you play Jacob. <laughs> then you reconsider. But the fact is, consider yourself alive, dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself that because it's true. Positionally, it's true. So make it experientially true as well. Bring your experience in conformity to your position in Christ. This is why identification is basic. Let, 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 I mean, if kids can get this, kids can get this. Even small children can get this. Small children that kind of resent the fact that other parents are nicer than your parents and that, and that your parents are stricter than their parents and you're getting spanked for things that, you know, Johnny didn't get spanked for. And it's like, well, I'm not Johnny's dad. I'm your dad. And you identify with the Bolanders. And since you identify with the Bolanders, this is what's appropriate for this identification. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it's the same thing. And so a little kid can get that. A small child can understand that this is what I identify with. This is what goes with that, with that identification. And so is it, is it any different with our spiritual family? If we're born again into a spiritual family, are there things that go with, with the spiritual family that are different from how it went with our position in Adam when Satan was the god of this world and we were of our father, the devil. Okay. Should make sense. So there's um, that category. And then there's resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, the third tandem, the third pairing. So these six items are really broken down into, into three pairings. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And what's curious, you know, this might have even been the very same information that that hit them hard when they were being drawn and convicted. When the unbeliever was thinking about dying and going to hell, um, it might be that the truth about judgment was what it was that scared them, what it was that reached them, what it was that uh, convicted them, okay? Because the Father draws and the Spirit convicts, the Son also draws. There's a process involved that brings an unbeliever to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet, don't stop there. Once they're saved, these concepts become basic doctrine. They become foundational elements. Lay it out there. Resurrection and judgment should be out there. What's the difference between the great white throne and the judgment seat of Christ? What's the difference between the sheep and the goat judgment? What's the difference and the wilderness judgment of Israel? What's the difference? What are all these different judgments? Do we know what those judgments are? What are the different resurrections? What's the, uh, the rapture of the church? What's the first resurrection? What's the second resurrection? 
What's the resurrection of Christ? What's the first fruits resurrection? All right? Resurrections and judgments. The author of Hebrews says, those are basics. He says, I'm not even going to go over those again. You guys go over those yourselves. They've got sufficient New Testament passages to do that with. He's giving them here the uh, book of Hebrews, and uh, he says, I'm not laying the foundations again. We're going to press on to maturity. If God lets you press on to maturity, he might not. So this could be the very information contained within the drawing and conviction of the unbeliever. And um, I think we're familiar with these, John 6, John 12, John 16, that uh, this is some of the common grace that's at work and some of the um, preparation that the unbeliever receives when uh, God is uh, preparing them to hear the gospel. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Alright? The Father draws as part of what He's doing as He's wooing, as He's pulling, as He's drawing. And uh, as that happens, the unbeliever comes to Christ. The one who does come to Christ, I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65 of the same chapter, he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so what does the Father use? He could use a lot of things. He could use resurrection and judgment. He could use the fear of hell. He could use the the guilt of sin. He could use um, reconciliation with the Father. That was uh, that was huge on on uh, Pastor Cliff. He says, "Wow, I can be reconciled with the Father." That was that was to him. That was a big deal. And that was that was even bigger than you know sins being forgiven and whatever. Like, wow, reconciled with the Father. That was a big deal. And different people have different things that draw them and different things that convict them within the vast totality of what's done at, at uh, salvation. And it's not just the Father who's drawing. The Son says He's going to draw also. John twelve thirty two. He says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. So there is a global drawing as Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Common grace that allows the lost to respond to the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit convicts in John sixteen eight. And he, when he comes, he says, this is to your advantage that I go away. Why are you upset? Okay. Because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Because I'm going to heaven, you're sad? Are you kidding me? It's to your advantage that I go away. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For I go, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. It requires a victorious seated Jesus Christ sit at the right hand of the Father in order for the Father and the Son together to send the Holy Spirit. But when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so these are powerful doctrines and they are also motivational and essential to the newly saved. To the newly saved, to understand them for what they are. To understand resurrection and eternal judgment. It's not just a whoo. It's not just, well, I'm happy to be saved. Okay? Don't get me wrong. I am happy to be saved. All right? I don't want to go to hell when I die. But there's so much more. Because with judgment comes accountability, comes a sense of urgency, comes, oh, wait a minute. 
I'm accountable. I'm going to give an account. And judgment starts with the house of the Lord. I'm doubly accountable. Wait a minute. And so, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, and, and we see accountability and we see consequences, eternal consequences. It's also a, an encouraging ministry in the sense that, you know, with resurrection and judgment, that all the garbage I'm going through here, uh, it's worth it. The, the, the contrast is not even to be compared momentary light afflictions. So we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. That's a good thing to learn. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's an essential doctrine for a baby believer. Part of the elementary principles all under that heading of Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment that the author of Hebrews says. I'm not going to go into that. That's basics. We're going to go past that. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so that's a concept. And we can take that and we can put that together, that Second Corinthians truth. We can put that together with Matthew 10, with Hebrews 12, with Second Peter 3. And we realize, wow, judgment is, uh, is, uh, is, is still a reality in my life. And it's the positive judgment of righteousness. It's the judgment seat of Christ. It's the, it's the judgment of well done, good and faithful servant. It's the judgment that uh, I don't want to... See, I just don't want to think that, hey, I'm saved now and so there's no judgment. I'm saved now so i got to get out of jail free card. I'm saved now so I can do whatever I want to do. I'm saved now so, hey, anything goes have fun, do whatever. No. You know, in Matthew 10, why does Jesus tell believers to be afraid? He doesn't tell us to be afraid of hell. I think, I think people misread this verse. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. And it goes beyond that. I think we get that. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You realize Jesus said to still fear him. Now you're not going to go to hell because you're saved. But you still better fear the one who's able to destroy the body and the soul in hell. You see what is being said there? Don't fear hell, but fear the one who could but it's not because he's rescuing you from hell. Anyway, I think people misread that verse. Our God is a consuming fire. We should serve him with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. We should serve him with reverence and awe. Is the Father able to destroy my body in hell? Yeah, he's not going to, but he's able. See, that's the point. The one who is able. All right, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. I believe believers that lose their reverence and awe have no gratitude for being saved. 
they lose their reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you ever think of it in those terms? He is a consuming fire. And am I delivered from the wrath to come? Yes, I'm delivered from the wrath to come. Am I headed towards that fire? No, I'm not headed towards that fire. But he's still the same God. He didn't change. My destiny changed, but he's still the same God. Should my reverence diminish because now I'm saved? I think my reverence should increase. I think it should be magnified. Since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Second Peter 3. What sort of people ought you to be? Because you're not going to be destroyed in this way. So what sort of people ought you to be? Resurrection and judgments is powerfully motivational for godliness, for diligence in our walk. If I'm going to get sloppy, if I'm going to get carnal, if I'm going to get loose about my walk to where, what difference is there between me and the unbeliever, really? Wow. Why would I do that? Is my God not a consuming fire? Have I grown complacent before the God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? He's still the same God. I'm the object of His grace. I should walk that way. (laughs) In appreciation. In appreciation. You know, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This is verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Those elements, by the way, vocabulary from Hebrews, the elementary things. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. The earth and its works. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, not you, of course, because you're saved, we're delivered from the wrath to come. But nevertheless, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? You're not headed for that destruction, but the God who's going to do it is the God you serve. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? I want to hasten that day. I want it to be today. Let's hasten that day. Let's get it done this hour. Let's get it done right now. Maybe there's somebody sitting here right now that's not yet saved and you're going to get saved here before we leave. And it turns out you're the last person in the body of Christ. You finished the bride. Who knew? Okay, God did. And so think about it. That last person gets saved and now the bride is complete. I believe the split second the bride is complete, that trumpet sounds. It's not going to be but, you know, a moment or two, okay? Okay real shortly afterwards. Because the last member of the bride finishes the bride. The very next person to get saved is not in the bride. They're the first post-rapture believer. And they're staying here for the tribulation. So that last, that's why I think God's got to make it real quick because whatever that time range is between the last of the church and the first of the tribulation, say, 
God can't take his time on that. If, it, you know, if he's too slow, then he ends up with an extra person in the bride, and now God's got a problem. Okay? <laughs> and God's not that dumb. God knows what he's doing. Okay? And so that moment, and I want to be the evangelist that leads that person to Christ. I so do. Because I want to tell that story forever. That'll be my story forever and ever and ever. Yeah, you want to know how the bride was complete? Let me tell you. I was there. Yeah. Not to brag, just bragging in the Lord. So, but think about it. We are not slated for that judgment. But the God who inflicts that wrath, the God who inflicts that judgment is the God we serve. So what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. In Revelation it says, heavens and earth flee away. There was no longer a place found for them. But when when all matter becomes energy, that's how I read this, all matter becomes energy, even the elements themselves. We're breaking down the molecules, breaking down the atoms. The elements themselves will, will melt. There is no more structure of the physical universe. All matter becomes now pure energy. Wow. That's going to be kind of fun. We get to see that. Looking for and hastening. But, according to His promise... We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because there's a judgment in between. All the unbelievers are removed. And then, with only the righteous, new heavens, new earth. And here we go. And the author of Hebrews says, resurrection and judgments is basics. Elementary teachings. He's not even going to go into it. He's going to go past it and start giving Melchizedek priesthood material in chapters 6 through 12. All right. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgments. And this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. I want you to think about this between now and next week. If God permits. We're going to grow up. You're going to grow up. If God permits. Why would God not let you grow up? Why would God not let the Exodus generation enter into the land of rest? Okay? So think about it. Because He wants you to grow up. He orders you to grow up. But can a believer reach a point in his reversionism, in his darkness, in his rebellion, and then God says, that's it. And in one hand, He could just hand you off to the sin and to death, take you to heaven. Or he could hand you off to the not sin unto death and leave you here to not grow up. If God permits. Okay? So, think about it. We'll uh, pick up with this next week. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. And we want to grow up, Father. We want you to permit it. And so, Father, I pray as we study these verses, as we recognize your grace, and your forgiveness. That, Father, day by day, moment by moment, all that we are and all that we do is is by your grace. So, Father, uh, teach us these things that we can make the appropriate application that uh, 
we not get distracted and be fearful of the wrong thing. And even worse than that, Father, is that we fail to be fearful of the, of the correct thing. And Father, uh, this chapter is not here to cause us to be afraid of losing our salvation. This chapter is here for us to be afraid of, of something else, something worse, something different. And if we're not afraid of failing, if we're not afraid of not growing up, we need to be. So Father, this we will do if you permit. I thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right.